This morning, we are going to read what is, in my opinion, the very heart of the book of James. Normally, at this time, I would, I would have a, a unique introduction for this, for this passage to introduce it to you, but it turns out I've already done that. Because last week's sermon and last week's passage is the introduction to this week's sermon and this week's passage. I won't take the time to re-preach last week's sermon to you or for you, but we can't understand James 4, 4 through 10 if we don't have some understanding of verses 1 through 3. So I do need to at least review by way of introduction, what we talked about last week. This was the passage we studied last week, the first three verses of James chapter 4. And in in James 4 verse 1, James told us that the source of fights, quarrels, conflicts in our lives are the desires that each of us have in our own hearts. The reason that I jump into an argument with someone else, James says I should think about this less as what that person did that caused me to fight and more that I have a desire in my heart. And when someone does something that makes that desire feel or seem unmet, that I will fight, I will quarrel, I will go to war with that person, but that the root issue is my unmet desire. And we all have these desires. I mean, it's, it's, of course we do. And, and James, nor I, neither one would say all of those desires are even like evil or wrong or sinful desires. We have desires for just how we want to feel. Desires for what we want to accomplish. We have desires of how we want to be treated. How we want to be seen by other people. How we want to be accepted and by whom. But left to our own devices, like without supernatural intervention. On autopilot, we as human beings, we will live with our desires as the driving force of our life. And that's what James says is a problem, even if the desires are not wrong desires. And then anytime, if that is sort of the course of my life, that the the driving force in my life is my, are my desires, then when someone else steps on that desire, that's when I react negatively. And it can be like he says, I can, he says, I desire, then I don't have it. And so James says, I commit murder. I, I get on this path that the, like the dead end at the end of it is murder, but Just on that path, there's all kinds of things God hates. And the reason I'm on that is because of my unfulfilled desires and because my desires are the driving force of my life. And those desires, they can be anger fighting, but they can be 
withdraw, run away. It can be control or manipulation because I want to get my desires met and I want you to do that so I can figure out how to arrange you or control you because you can't hurt me if I'm in control. But what James wants us to see is the real problem in that scenario is that my life is directed by my desires. And when those don't get met, that's what makes me react in those ways. He, he ends the, those three verses by saying, and we, we wind up, our problem, we're asking something less than God to meet those desires asking for either the wrong things or with the wrong motives. And, and guys, that's just true about all of us in our natural state. Now, we might ask, but why is that so serious? Especially if the desires I have aren't inherently sinful desires. What's wrong with being controlled by desires that don't, that aren't bad. Well, that's where we're going today. Because you see, this, is, this, this isn't even the hard part. See, the, when I live my life based on my desires and it causes me to jump into war and conflict with you, the biggest problem is not my conflict with you. There's something even more serious behind that. And that's where we start today. Let's read James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. In the New American Standard, they read this way. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So we start today in verse 4 where we read, wait a minute, what did he just call us? <laughs> James says, verse 4, you adulteresses, or your Bible might say adulterers, you adulterous people. That's kind, of a, that's kind of a serious thing to say. And James is just talking to people that he talked about in verses 1 through 3 that we can all agree is, are a lot like us. I think we better stop and try to make sense of how James can call people like us adulterous and what this friendship with the world that makes us adulterous means? How do we make sense of this? Well, to understand how 
People like you and me can be called adulterous in this way. We have to understand that when the Bible talks about God's relationship to somebody who has become one part of his people, there's, there's a, a couple of main metaphors that God tends to use. One is the, the metaphor of, of adoption, of being a child of God. That's a very common metaphor for being in a relationship with God. Like that was the Galatians one. We become adopted by God and we're heirs as his children. But another common um, metaphor to describe that relationship is one of marriage, where, where we are the bride, or God is our bridegroom. This is what James is, is playing on here. This is the metaphor he's using. James would have been very familiar with this passage from Isaiah, where he says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says, says your God. And we could, I could show you multiple other passages where someone who is part of the people of God, um, that relationship is pictured like it's a marriage. Now, what is it about being a friend of the world or friendship with the world that makes us an unfaithful spouse to God. Doesn't God so love the world? Didn't, what, didn't Jesus make friends with people in the world? Yes. Here's the, here's the concept. First, to understand this well, we have to understand what James would have thought when he uses a word like friend. We, we use that word to describe probably anybody we know moderately well that we don't have much in the way of problems with. We call that person a friend. And that's, that's fine. I'm not trying to change our usage of the word friend this morning. But for James, the word he uses here, philia, is one of the Greek words for love. Like if you've heard Philadelphia called the city of brotherly love, that comes from this same Greek word. It's a, it's a word for love that has a range of meanings that can just mean brotherly love. But, but James is talking about the kind of relationship where people are extremely intimately related. Like they share all things in common. They do life together. That's this word. So, what would you say to me if you found out that I, I had a very close-knit relationship with a woman that was, it's not Rachel, and one where Rachel is not involved or doesn't know about that relationship. So not where Rachel and I have a very good friend that, that we love. But if I had it, now this hadn't gone to like an eros sort of love, to use another Greek word, but I had a relationship with a woman that Rachel doesn't know about where I'm trying to get some of my love needs met. I'm asking her to make me feel cherished, manly. 
like a provider. I'm, I hope that you would love me enough to rebuke me for that relationship. But why would you? Could I say, well, it's okay to be, have friends with people in the world? No, you would say, wait a second. Because of the relationship, the covenant you are in with Rachel, that gives her exclusive rights. To meet some of you, to be the person that meets some of your needs. And, but what if I said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me tell you how Rachel's not meeting some of those needs. You would say, I don't care. <laughs> right? But still, she's the only one. Okay, here's what James is saying. Do you know that God... He wants to meet, we've talked about this a lot recently, He wants to meet all of your deepest needs. Do you know that? Do you believe that? God God wants to meet your needs for belonging, for security, for acceptance, for joy, for hope, for peace. And because He is our bridegroom, He is like our husband, He has exclusive rights to being the need provider of those things. And here's why understanding verses 1 through 3 is so important. Because that's where the adultery is actually described. When I live my life where my needs are the driving force, my desires are the driving force of my life. And that leads me to try and get those needs met, not from Him and not in ways He says I should try to get them met. But I think there's more out out there, down here, somewhere. That's what James calls spiritual adultery. That's when I'm friends with the world, the world system, this, the, the way the world normally works apart from God, separate from God. Anytime I am trying to get my desires met apart from God and in means and in ways that God disagrees with. James says, that's like I'm, I'm cheating on God. And you do this. And so do I. When James says friendship with the world means hostility toward God, it's, it's, he's saying it's the same thing as this my special friendship with this other woman is choosing hostility with Rachel. Verse 5 is kind of difficult to translate, but the main idea is clear. First, James does not give a direct quote from the Old Testament because there's nothing in the Old Testament that says what he says. He is, we would say, he is paraphrasing a common theme from the Old Testament, which is that the Lord is a jealous God. 
Exodus 34, 14 says, For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. My uh, one commentator put the point of verse 5 this way. After laying out what spiritual adultery is, verse 5 means this. God does not accept that infidelity with indifference. So if we take those first five verses of James 4, last week's passage and what we've studied thus far, and we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that James is striking a a terrible blow at me, at each of us. Do you tend to try to get your needs and desires met in ways other than God and in ways other than God would approve of? Anybody? Yes. First, he says, that's where your conflicts come from. But today he says, but it's worse than that. If you're a Christian, God has exclusive rights as your comforter, your provider, your security, all of those things. He's the one whose acceptance of you meets all of your needs for acceptance. And when we try to get those things another way, he considers that like adultery. So, when God looks at you and he sees how you tend to try to be accepted, how you try to get joy, purpose, fun, excitement, how you what you try to do to feel cared for, to feel adequate. What's he see? Isn't it a wonder sometimes that God hasn't just ripped us out of the world? We, we who look out there, either at another person we know well or what we see on the news, and we get so furious at that sin, that wickedness, while ignoring our own spiritual adultery. What, what should he do with us? What do we deserve in this marriage with God? In response to me cheating on him again. What we deserve is divorce, to be thrown out in the cold. But you know what he does? Read the beginning of verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. That is a breathtaking sentence of Scripture. But he gives a greater grace. What we, what we deserve and what we get are opposite. Why was it that God, to keep this marriage metaphor going, why was it that God married you in the first place? Married us in the first place? Was it because of how beautiful we were to him? 
Was it because of how much we had in common with him? Was it because of how good of a match we were for him? No, he married you in the first place because he gives a greater grace. That grace, whenever you came to know Christ as your Savior, if you have, the grace he gave you was really was greater than all of your sin. It was enough to, to wipe out and clean up every sin you had ever sinned. He gives a greater grace. And then he gave you, he cleaned you up so clean in his eyes, he gave you the perfection of Jesus Christ that you bear to this day. That's how great of a grace he gave you. But you and I, we didn't stop sinning when he cleaned us up, did we? No, we are, we're lecherous, adulterous. We continue to think there's actually better than him out there somewhere. And he still gives a greater grace. His grace is, is too powerful to be stained. And it's, and it's mine by faith. And it's yours by faith. That's what God gave you when he gave you a greater grace. Stronger than any sin you had ever sinned. Stronger than any sin you will ever sin. But this book is about growing in this faith of ours, maturing in this faith of ours. How do we move from ignoring that grace in which we stand, using that grace in which we stand, abusing that grace in which we stand, to enjoying that grace? in which we stand. How do we move from where I was for decades of my life where I thought, yeah, I get all that stuff, but my life will surely be lame and boring if I live my life the way God says life ought to be lived. How do we move from that to actually enjoying this greater grace? See, that's, that's James's concern. So first, since he gives a greater grace, therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the hunger, to the, to the humble, excuse me, maybe I'm getting hungry. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I want you to notice something here. It does not say God opposes the unrighteous, but he gives grace to the righteous. God opposes the immoral, but he gives grace to the moral. God opposes the disobedient, but he gives grace to the obedient. Those, those sentences I just said were nonsense. Because it wouldn't be grace. It would be earned. So, who's the proud and who's the humble that, in James's sort of examples here? In James's context. Who's the proud person in this context? The proud person in verses 1 through 6 
is the person who, has, who is set on the lie that I can get my desires met apart from God. I can make people like me, love me, accept me, and I can feel accepted by what I do for them. I can make myself successful and feel worthy because of it. I can, can make myself desirable or keep myself desirable. I can straighten my life out. I can fix my spouse. I, 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 I. That's who God opposes. It's the person whose life is wrapped up in their own desires, their life, their day-to-day life. What am I getting? What am I not getting? How am I being treated? How am I not being treated? What is being given? What is being withheld? Me, me, me. That's who God opposes. But as it turns out, God doesn't have to do much. He just has to let us, okay, he just has to let us go. As we try to find those things apart from him, because it doesn't exist. In this context then, who is the humble person that receives this grace? It's just the opposite. It's the person who's come to understand, oh, it's actually not my desires that should be the point of my life. It's yours. It's that person who only has eyes for him, so to speak. It's a person who has learned to live like John the Baptist's word. he words, he must increase, I must decrease. The humble person is the one who's figuring out who the point of their life is, and it's not them. It's the person who can say this with the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 14. Therefore, here's why I do not lose heart. Because life is going so well and everyone treats me just how I want to be treated. Is that what he says? No, he says, here's why you don't lose heart. Even though outwardly we are wasting away. We could go around the room and take, make a list of how our lives are wasting away. What would we hear? We would hear some physical things because of my diagnosis, because of my pain, because of my knees, because of my disease. We could hear emotional things because just how I feel, relationship things. You want to see wasting away? Come home with me. Look at my marriage. We're wasting away. Paul says, We don't lose heart. Even when we're wasting away inwardly, we're still being renewed day by day. Why? How? Because he gives a greater grace. And and because Paul says, I see when I'm in prison, when I'm being beaten, when I'm being chased, when I'm being hated, I see all this as light and momentary Troubles. You have to remember who wrote this before you tell me how bad your life is. Light and momentary troubles. This life is a breath. It's a vapor. It's a dot. 
all this stuff, if I receive it and I live faithfully through it about his desires, not mine, it will just, it's going to turn into eternal glory that so far outweighs anything painful. We'll never even, we can't even compare it. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what we see is temporary. What we can't see is eternal. That is the humble person that enjoys God's grace, who understands there is renewal to be had while everything else is wasting away. This, this is not James saying, hey, God's got some grace for you. If you'll straighten up, you wretch. That's not what he's saying. This is James saying, as much as we deserve him to leave us, he never will. And as much as it angers him when I try to get through sin, what he promises to give me through grace. When you try to earn what he wants to give you for free, when we try to find out there what is only found up there. His jealousy, his anger is outweighed by this giant propensity to give grace. But the only people who enjoy the grace are the ones who are humble enough to come enjoy it. Stop trying to get what is better some other way. So verse 7, that's why he says, submit therefore to God. Why does James want us to submit to God? Because if you don't, God is going to whack you. God is going to fry you. You submit to God because he's a tyrant that wants you under his thumb. No, submit to God. Why? Because that's where the grace is and there's nothing better. Stop trying to find what's better than the author of all that is good. Submit. So James said, quit it. Like, stop. Come back. Come home. Fall down. Cease striving. Because trying to get better than him and what he says is best is the most foolish thing going. That's the heart of the book of James. It's really the whole passage. It's kind of the whole book. But he does end by reinforcing this. He gives some, I call them poetic couplets, just these two line sayings to hammer home his point. First one, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you see how those two things go together? You do one by doing the other. Resist the devil and he will flee from you is not some mini handbook for spiritual warfare. Now that we understand that all of our desire chasing is spiritual adultery, that's what our enemy wants tempt us with. No, 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 no. There's better out there. Did God really say you can't do that? Oh, he's holding out on you. 
That's where the temptation is. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Guess how we do that? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Because I got news for you. You want to know who the devil's scared of? It ain't you. It's our big brother, the Lord Jesus. We draw near to him. That is when the devil flees. Next, James says, cleanse your hand, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this, this is a very practical book, James. Or it's about how to kind of put this faith into our lives that we might grow in it. And man, James has just been hammering away at us with some really difficult things to learn, right? And the, the difficult things for me to hear about me. But we have to understand those truths to be able to grow in them. But listen, knowing these truths is not enough if you want to grow in this faith. There's some stuff we've got to do. There's some things we have to change. There's some stuff we have to clean up on our outsides and on our insides, on our hands and in our hearts. The churchy biblical word for this is repent. I draw near to God. You want to do that? Of course I do. Well, then what might I need to clean up? What in my heart are the, the desires that are shaping my life? What are the, the loyalties that are driving my life? And then what behaviors come out of that? And what in all of those two things, what is it that I need to, to have him wash out of me? What am I chasing that I think is better that needs cleaned up? Verse 9, he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not James saying, if you do Christianity right, you are miserable all the time. That's not what this means. It's not true at all. That's the lie I used to believe that Christianity taking hold of my life would look like. That's not true. But here's what James is saying. Because James is talking about the way we usually, the ways we usually tend to try to get joy, pleasure, our desires met. Our natural tendency is to try to get that apart from God. And as long as nothing truly bad happens, I'll just keep plugging away. And listen, I can laugh off. Unless something truly terrible happens, I can laugh off any criticism of what I'm doing. I can, I can laugh off the notion that somehow what I'm doing actually isn't best for me. I can laugh off how angry I am. I can laugh off the mean things I say. I can laugh off how I gave that person what was coming to them. I can laugh off how much I party, how much I drink, and how often. I can laugh off anything that doesn't blow up 
too badly in my face. How all men do stuff like this. James is begging us to understand this is serious. What we're dealing with amounts to adultery against God. We can't laugh this off. He gives a greater grace. He's never going to run out of it. But we have to come to understand that my sin, and as I pursue my desires to be met apart from him and the way he says is best, I can't laugh that off anymore. No, you're choosing the other woman, the other man. You know, we, we sing a song sometimes that has this one line in it, break my heart for what breaks yours. I don't think he's saying, break my heart for that terrible sin that the world does that I already hate. He's talking about this. Will you break my heart for the stuff in here that I do, that I laugh off, that I excuse away? Break my heart for what breaks yours in me. This is not a call to be generally miserable, but it is a call to regret sin with godly sorrow and to see it as a serious breach in my most important relationship. And then James ends with this one. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's something else you desire. And so do I. You desire to be exalted. And you think, oh, oh, Pastor Matt, I'm a, I'm a raging introvert. The last thing I want to do is be, be exalted. No, no, you do. To, to be exalted just means to be lifted up. You want to feel better? That's being exalted. You want to feel more secure? You want to feel less sad? Do you want to be thought better of? Do you want to be cherished? That's all just being exalted, being lifted up. We all have that desire, and as Christians, we have a choice to make. Who or what am I going to ask to exalt me, my skills, my talents, my abilities. If I achieve good enough, I'll be exalted in the eyes of people. My friends, my belongings, my next trip, my next party, or my God. To humble ourselves before God means in part coming to Him and saying, here's how I've been trying to exalt myself. Here's how I tend to make much of me and make my life about me. I realize I'm not the point. My life should be trying to exalt you. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, whoever wants to save his life is just going to lose it. Whoever is searching, looking out there somewhere for a great deal of a life in the end is going to lose it. Whoever loses his great deal of a life or humbles himself before God, that's the one who actually finds it. C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity, he wrote about this this way. He said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. 
That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way, apart from himself, because it's not there. There's no such thing. He also said, C.S. Lewis, like, if we pursue, he was talking about comfort, but we can do this with any of our desires. The harder we pursue them, the less likely we are to get them. Our desires are insatiable. But if we pursue truth in the person of Jesus Christ, we pursue truth, in the end we find that we, we wind up receiving all those desires we quit pursuing. But we've got to see our pursuits apart from him and apart from things he says is okay and good for us as the adultery that James says it is. The only thing that keeps God, God's nearness from being real in our lives is our pursuit of things that aren't him. We've got to repent of some stuff. We've got to wash our hands and wash our hearts always knowing we turn toward him with expectant faith that says this, he gives a greater grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we are an adulterous lot because we pursue our desires in a way that makes them the main point of our life. Father, there may be some here this morning who are ready to wash their hands and wash their hearts. To begin to live as if you are the point and to, to just come to you as the point of life, to, to relent, to fall down, to humble ourselves before you. God, you have the exclusive rights to deliver on our desires. Lead us in repentance so that we might enjoy this great grace which you bestow upon the humble. In Christ's name, amen. Just stand with us and we'll finish our time this morning.